Let's Roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Randy Davis. I'm Jeremy Duvall. And I'm Ralph Enough. We're back again from the Nerdless Builder Studio. And we have the infamous... Infamous works. When we did the Colorblind episode, I think I referred to myself as Dojo's Darling Doormat. Uh, so <laughs> that, that, that'll work, I think. Randy is like the good guy in the Hallmark Channel holiday movie, <laughs> where there's the big city doctor whose car breaks down in the small country town, and she's got to wait two days for them to get the part, and then she meets the guy and goes to his niece's play at the local school, and then, you know, Randy's the local small town lawyer, and she's the big city lawyer, you know. Lawyer, upgrade, cool. <laughs> right, it writes itself. It writes itself. Yeah, that works. Sure, I'll take it. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll be a Hallmark movie star. Get those residuals every Christmas. Works. Sounds good to me. Well, it's been a while since you've been on, Randy. Give us a you know refresh refresh the audience. Who is Randy Davis? Who is Randy Davis? The enigma that is Randy Davis. Nah, uh, I guess it's been about about a year now uh, since we did the the colorblind episode. But no, I'm I'm Randy. I live in in Texas. Play in this buzzsaver region down here, and uh, I play dwarfs. And within the last year, or so I play uh, forces of the abyss. I've finished up my cowboys from hell army and uh, got those on the table for a couple tournaments this past year, including best of the rest. How long have you been playing Kings of War? Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I picked it up right before the pandemic started. So <laughs> about uh, about three going on almost four years now, I suppose, because it was right around, oh, I guess it was my, my birthday in November 2019. I decided to like get some, get some mini paints and get back into like painting miniatures. And I knew from when I'd played Warhammer back in the day. Um, that there was still a scene that had moved to Kings of War. So I thought, okay, it's time to move back to this and get this picked up and everything. Uh, and then right before uh, Lone Wolf uh, <laughs> that year, uh, there was a plague. Uh, I don't know if you all remember, <laughs> but uh, we, that's that's about the time I started. Uh, and then my first tournament was, was Alamo that year. So yeah, I guess about four, yeah, coming up on four years or so playing Kings. And it's been it's been great so far. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. The community's fantastic, and uh, I look forward to to every tournament I get to attend. <laughs> I can't believe it's only been that amount of time. Isn't that weird, Rob? We've now been playing Kings of War. It's not just like the game we've just switched to, right? We've now been playing Kings of War for almost, God, Almost a decade, years? isn't it? Or pushing yeah, that? Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> It's like you think of these people who are like, oh, yeah, I've been playing Kings of War with that guy. You don't realize that within if a game has been around now for eight years plus, people have had years to come and go. It's no longer just the new game that everyone has switched to. It's become really its own entity. Oh, for sure. And like Kings, not Kings, sorry, uh, COVID time is weird time anyway. So like it, right. it, it's mm-hmm. all uh, it's all wibbly wobbly, timey wimey to uh, to uh, cater like to my a week Doctor Who fans. 10 years. It feels like a week yeah, in 10 exactly, years. Exactly, exactly. All at the same time. Exactly. 
Awesome. Let's get into the List Builder Studio. Are you ready, Randy? Uh, I mean, a little nervous, I suppose. But I mean, I guess you guys are ready. This could be a relatively short episode. If you want my insight on list building, it's it comes down to, uh, you know, ask Tom or Dustin or Kyle Poole. <laughs> That's kind of the extent of my list building. But I'll give it a shot. This is going to be fun. I think we're gonna we're gonna crack some jokes. We're gonna have some drinks, and it's gonna be a blast. <laughs> the List Builder Studio. Randy, in every Persian rug, there's the one stitch that's misstitched on purpose so that the f- flaw draws your attention to the greater beauty around you. You can be that flaw. So <laughs> we'll take a look flaw. at you. You're the, you're the misstitched rug. I want to see Paige do a meme out of that. Randy Davis is a misstitched Persian rug. But, you know, we're, we try to be inclusive here at Countercharge. So we want List Builder Studios from people all across the, the rainbow, wherever you are in scalability, life choices, whatever you want to do, you're welcome in the List Builder Studio. Uh, I've, speaking of memes for him, I've got one for him because the last two List Builder Studios you guys did were – Steven and Luke, Australian master and US master. And now there's me. So there's that three headed dragon meme where the two of them look really serious and there's the really derpy one on the end. I'm the derpy one. <laughs> First question What draws you to an army? You know, is it the models? Is it how the army plays? Is it a perceived weakness? Is it like the rarity of that army in your local area? So for me personally, like being dwarfs is like my main army. That stems from way back in the Warhammer days, like in the early 2000s, uh, when I first got into Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, my first army was actually High Elves. Um, but my buddy that got me into the game, uh, him and his older brothers, like he was playing uh, Chaos. Uh, his older brothers were playing Undead. Another one of our friends was playing Bretonia. Uh, and so my usual sparring partner was the chaos player and his army ended up like facing itself every time we played because he would just blow through one line because of toughness elf uh, and then just completely mop the table with me. So after getting my ass beat a number of times from that, I decided I needed something a little beefier and made the switch to dwarfs just because I liked their aesthetic and uh, they were, you know, had a bit more oof oomph to them. Uh, they could you know, take a punch and that's just, I you know, fell in love with that dwarf aesthetic from the, the Warhammer lore and everything uh and that just kind of stuck when when i came back to kings um it, it being mini agnostic i was like well i've got you know this backlog of dwarfs um i'll start there and then you know as i it's a throw what you know type thing there um and then as it grew, since it's, like I said, it's mini agnostic, uh, it was for about a year and a half, it was see cool dwarf by cool dwarf. Um, and so my whole army is just this mismatch of, of different manufacturers. It's got some Mantic, some GW, some Oathmark, some uh, Cyborg, uh, just a whole lot of everything in there. Um, so that's what drew me to that was just kind of uh, necessity and aesthetic to a point. Um, but then after um, getting my ass handed to me as dwarfs for a good couple of years, I'm like, I need more of a toolbox army um and that that's where the uh the force of the abyss came in and that was kind of a self-fulfilling thing in and of itself i knew i needed a toolbox and i had this idea for how cool would an army be based off like pantera's cowboys from hell and i was like well why don't i just take the two of them and, and marry it and uh now uh, that's that's where that army came from and i had some success with it uh well minor success success as far as i'm concerned <laughs> i wasn't going over at tournaments anymore um so yeah that's what kind of drew, drew me to it um other armies i've had my eye on uh, as far as like what draws me to them is definitely like what's missing regionally like i would love to play a like a trash goblin army just because i don't see a lot of those uh in the south um i think that'd be that would be 
like that play style appeals to me as well. Um, I just don't have the, I don't have the time or the patience, I think, to do a horde army like that. Um, but it's a, it's a fun pipe dream. Um, a lot of what draws me to like hobby ideas and army ideas is more of, uh, what can I do with this army to make it look cool? Um, there's, I don't know if y'all know much about the South region, but it's pretty stacked, uh, competition wise. So I'm not winning any tournaments anytime soon. So I'd like to just get some cool looking armies on the table. Um, and by the same token, I'm, I'm not winning any, uh, painting awards anytime soon either with, with the painters in this region. So maybe player's choice is, uh, it's what I should be aiming for. Um, but yeah, in a long-winded roundabout way to answer your question, what draws me to an army is, you know, the aesthetic or a cool hobby idea. Um, or if nothing else fails, just what's available. <laughs> so you mentioned theme there a little bit. Like when you're looking at an army theme, it seems to me, are you drawn a little bit more towards sort of the fluff model side of the theme as opposed to, I want to make a new army that really is super fast or I want to make an army that has shooting or when you're thinking about the theme of your army, do you start with the models and the, the, the vision of what you wanted to do or is it play style or is it a little bit of both or uh, I think it's definitely um, the, it, it starts with the models and the idea for the army uh, from a, from a hobby perspective. I think I'm more driven by that nowadays than I am uh, like the competitive side of things. Don't get me wrong. I want to make a competitive list and uh, you know, finish somewhere in the top half at, at, at GTs and whatnot. But I don't think that's my, my driving force. I think it's more of like the hobby aesthetic and um, just, just seeing a cool idea come to fruition. Uh, like with the Cowboys from hell thing, for example, or I've had um, uh, <laughs> I had an idea for like this, this uh, circus themed goblin army um, that I think would be really cool to put together. Uh, but again, horde army would take forever. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, very, very hobby driven in that, in that instance. Yeah, and I've got to play against both two of your armies, right? I got to play against your your dwarves, which I loved. Were such a beautiful army. I mean, it's it's hard uh, when you have really nice painted Shabor models or some of the nice dwarves. Those armies are just those. Uh, when you have a great canvas, right, that you can then paint w- well, it's it makes the army so pop. Absolutely, absolutely. Like just, it, I'm I find myself drawn to like cooler minis now. Um, more than like the the stat block, so to speak. I'll see the mini and, and make it work, and that's that's kind of the the beauty of kings is uh, since it's based on footprint size, um, I can I can take a mini and and make it fill whatever role I need. Like oh, if this is going to be a cool like centerpiece unit leader for a for a regiment or a horde or something, it can go there. Or if it's a uh, a cool piece all on its own, I'll put it on a on a twenty mil and cool. Now it's an individual uh, or, or whatever the case may be. Um, it's, you know, the, the footprints in and of themselves are a canvas that you get to like show off and play with. Um, so that's, that's always been really appealing to me as well. Yeah. And I really loved playing against your cowboy old West abyssal army, which kind of reminded me of like the dark tower meets like pulpy, uh, 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 like spaghetti blood Western. If that was a genre. Yeah. I just really love that. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious when you're, your inspiration is that, does that come from a model or do you find inspiration too in like a movie? Like you'll see a certain movie and it'll be like, oh, like uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven. We talk a lot about you don't watch that movie unless you want to do a, a kingdoms of men army. Right. <laughs> right. Where does your, where do you find inspiration when you're 
starting a new project? So a lot of it comes from, I, I want to do something unique. I want to try and do something that hasn't been done before that I haven't seen before. Um, like I, to, to beat a dead horse. Cause it's the only other army I have besides the dwarfs with the Cowboys from hell. I was driving to work one day and that song came on my Spotify and I, the, the wheels started clicking and I was like, this could be, this could be a really cool like theme for an army. Um, and I started trying to plot it out in my head and I was like, you know, like all the abyssal armies are just, it's black and lava and charcoal type basing and, you know, hellish landscapes. I'm like, let's do something different. Let's put them, put them in the desert. And let's just start of kind of ballooning from there. Um, I was like, let's, let's just make this happen and see what works. And I, I'm really pleased with the way it turned out. I think it was great. <laughs> it got third best painted at, at best of the rest, but it's because all the good painters were in the other room. <laughs> it's still hot, even though there's no lava. Yeah, yeah. It's still hot. It's out in the desert. Yeah, yeah. It's like some of the basing stuff. I got like the 3D printed cactuses uh, to on there and whatnot. I've, I pulled out a couple of the old uh, GW like skeletal horses or skeleton horses um, and buried them in the sand on the base is like, you know, they've it's a long dead carcass that's been out there that's just hanging out in the desert and just it, it really tried to push myself from a hobby standpoint to see what i could do with uh something different that wasn't just like mountainous rocky terrain like i'd done with my dwarfs for the last like three years at that point so um and again to be long-winded in answering jeremy's question i i, I look to find something that's unique and different that's going to be eye-catching uh just from like a theme standpoint because I, I want i want something that's memorable that i can be proud of and that people will will think is cool and can like and you know uh swap hobby stories over a couple beers or something as we stand next to the army and you know stroke my ego a, a tad <laughs> yeah you sound really hobby focused and, and i wonder how does that impact you know list building this is the part of the, the show where we ask people you know do you have like foundational concepts that you apply to any army but i'm more curious about how your hobby affects your list building i think the hobby really benefits it in the long run because especially with from the standpoint of oh this is cool i want to do this or this unit seems cool this is a cool idea i want to i want to expand on that see what i can, what it looks like on the table when it's done after a while you find yourself staring down the barrel of three four thousand points worth of an army and you can build whatever list you want at that point but that's that's again that's a long form type plan a more long-term plan there's definitely some consideration taken into mind for like what my play style is or what type of army i want to play and seeing how best i can mesh those two ideas together because like i said I, I obviously want to show up and be a little competitive i don't want to just get steamrolled every tournament like his army is pretty to look at and it will be a pretty easy win for you so you know good good you're good for you drawing randy for this uh <laughs> for this round um <laughs> But uh, yeah, the I think the hobby definitely benefits the list building in the long run, um, because by the time I've got umpteen points worth or umpteen hundred points of uh, of an army, I can just I can build whatever list I want, whatever fits the uh, the current rule sets or the meta, whatever has shifted. Yeah, it really lends itself to that. I don't have to worry about you know last minute stuff like painting in the hotel the night before an event which i've still done because i'm a i'm a champion procrastinator but <laughs> theoretically it should benefit me in that uh after a while i won't need to be painting uh as much at the last minute listening to randy talk he's not a list builder he's an army builder i mean he's just building lots of units you have an army collection if you will and then from that, you then, okay, so that's that's a little different than uh, than some of the people we've had on before because, you know, they'll build a list and they'll model to that list, right? They'll say, 
these are the units that I want to, that I want to build an army list around. Um, and then they'll actually build it. Whereas it sounds like you're coming at it, like going, these are cool. It's a cool theme. These are cool models. This is a cool basing idea. I'm just going to build all of these things for sure. And I'm going to have this toolbox. And then from there, you're going to pick and choose what you actually put into your list. Absolutely. It works. It works in tandem. I'm not, I'm not, building the army without an army list in mind, I might have the beginnings of an army list in mind, but I'm marrying the theme to that um, so that it's all, you know, uh, copacetic uh, throughout the whole process and everything's, uh, everything's meshed together. Yeah. I think what he's describing to me, Rob, like what I'm hearing is that this Genesis does not have to be prescribed and resolute. It can be organic and malleable, right? That during this army creation, you can try new things, look at models, one leads to the other. It's a very sort of circular uh, creation. Practical, not just theoretical. Exactly. Y'all make it sound like I know what I'm doing. I'm just playing with toy soldiers, guys. (laughs) That's why they they pay us the big bucks, Mr. Davis. All right. To try to make you sound as uh, sophisticated as as sophisticated as possible. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit the love of hobby that you have in your heart and sort of how that evolves and works in, in tandem with list building. Do you find though, when you're list building, is there a certain uh, play style you like? Uh, Do you like to be more proactive where you're forcing your opponent to make choices against your list? Like speed list comes to mind or shooting or whatever. Or do you prefer a reactive where more sit back and grind? Is there a certain play style that tends to follow you from project to project? Or is it, does that change as well? I, I think so. Now that I've been branching out and looking at other armies and other, like exploring other hobby ideas and whatnot, I, I'm noticing a theme throughout my play style, which has been that very dwarf reactive, like take the punch and then come hit back the counter uh, counter offensive type list or the sit back and grind, not sit back, but the sit there and grind um, like dwarfs do, like Abyss does. Um, that And I'm noticing that as I look at other armies. Um, and I, that really appeals to me. I like the aspect of not so much being reactionary, but setting myself up in such a way that, I'm, I'm. I now have an advantageous counterpunch, forcing my opponent to come to me because that's that's where the meat is. That's like him forcing him to play my game, where it seems sort of reactionary. Uh, I, I'm getting them to play my game and play against me rather than me playing against them. Um, and that's you know that's come from a a, a long time of getting my ass beat as a dwarf player because <laughs> I had no speed to go. Because you sort of have to. You kind of right? have to. That's yeah, like- you have to adapt and learn. And it's like, okay, I have to think about turn six and seven on turn one. I can't just throw caution to the wind and go play completely reactionary um, because then you're going to let your opponent walk all over you. If you're just reacting to everything you're they're doing without any other sort of, of plan in mind, yeah, you're setting yourself up for failure. What's what's this uh, phrase? If you if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, um, and that's that's kind of the approach I had to take. So I've I've gotten used to that, thinking a couple of turns ahead and setting that up in advance and playing that counterattack style, um, and then that carried over to when I started playing Forces of the Abyss, um, and I had a lot more options in that toolbox, a lot more utility. I could still play the grindy style and forcing my opponent to come play my game. Um, but I now have a lot more tools at my disposal. Like, hey, cool, I've got a 50 mil uh, flyer that can come harass and hunt war machines or individuals or whatever it has to do I, uh, or whatever I need it to do. I don't have to just sit and wait for you to come to me with my dinky little four-inch speed. I can go project threat across the board at different objectives and uh, 
open up other avenues for me to play the game. So how important has it been in your journey as you've grown as a hobbyist and a player to get the tushy kicked in or to lose? How important do you think losing has been in your journey? Oh, I think it's very important, uh, mostly because it's uh, all of what I know. <laughs> uh, I've been getting my butt kicked across the table for for so many years now. Um, I, you know, when I first started playing Kings, um, the, I, I was told. I think it was when I started playing Kyle Pool, um, or man, gosh, maybe it was during one of the other UB tournaments uh, early on during COVID. Um, and if I if it was Kyle then great if it wasn't I apologize to whoever I'm miscrediting it to but it's uh you either you either win or you learn and I did a lot of learning um there's always that's that's your catchphrase right which if you don't know uh uh, Randy's catchphrase uh, can you give it to us please you're gonna learn today you're gonna learn today (laughs) hit the soundboard have you heard all the times we put it in the show (laughs) it's part of the show now Randy. it makes me smile when I hear it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 you got your own catchphrase. I, I didn't expect it to take off like it did, but you know what? I'll I'll lean into the skid. Yeah, sure. I, <laughs> it's great. Anytime I hear it in an episode, like it, it makes me chuckle. Like I, I enjoy it. <laughs> so when you've had those tough uh, losses, Randy, as you're 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 going through learning how to get better, let's say you're playing like a top end player, right, and you lose or whatever. Mm-hmm. Will you ask for advice? Do they offer advice? Do you like to hear advice after a game? Is it like, I just want to cool off a little bit and then I'll circle back? Uh, talk to me a little bit about what do you like to hear in that post-game breakdown with your opponent after a game like that? For sure, for sure. Like, I'm I'm never, like, heated when I lose because usually I can see the writing on the wall. <laughs> like, again, dwarf player, we're kind of used to it. Um, but so once once the game's over, I, I if I'm playing, like, someone that I know knows what they're doing. Um, I will absolutely ask them for advice. Be like, Hey, what do you think uh, I should have done different this, that, and the other, just being really cordial and, and friendly about it. I've got no qualms about asking uh, better players uh, how to be better at the game. Uh, I, I, I uh, what's the word I'm looking for. I outsource a lot of my list building that way. Um, I say a lot of it, most of it. Um, but yeah, I've got no problem asking for advice or you know what they would do differently, what they would change about the list, what they would change about my deployment, which I feel a lot of times is the worst part of my of my game because it has to be so you have to be so like precise with your deployment with dwarfs because you're again you're thinking about turn six during deployment for the game, so you've got to be you know there's there's very very minimal room for for error there, uh, and inevitably since I'm not smart enough, I'm <laughs> I'm gonna make an error of some kind. Um, and I'm I'm smart enough to know that there are people that know this game better than I do, and I'll go seek them out. And I I have no qualms about uh, changing my approach to the game, or changing my approach to the list, or the deployment, or how I play a particular scenario. Like I said, you win or you learn, and there's so much you can learn from playing people that are better than you. Um, look at the whole like the disciples of Dustin, that whole that whole group, everyone he's taken under his wing, and it's just you know. You you're getting your your teeth kicked in so many times. You're bound to learn something, and like they all got better. <laughs> like there was a, a stretch of tournaments uh, for about a year where I ended up playing Tristan Glidden like every, without fail every tournament, and I still haven't beaten him. I think the only tournament I dodged him at was was best of the rest. I think it's good advice you bring up, right? Of if you want to get better or in whatever you. Whatever topic, right? Surround yourself with people who who are good at that thing. So you want to get better, ask good players questions. You want to become a better hobbyist, find painters you love, 
and ask them, Hey man, can you take a look at my models? What do you think? You know? So it's, I think being inquisitive and thinking about life is uh, a forever classroom that learning should be lifelong that don't be opposed to just asking questions to people. I really think that's how you, if you want to get better and you want to become a better hobbyist, I, I think just become inquisitive is a good place to start. Absolutely. Don't feel like you have to be stuck in your ways and like, okay, this will work eventually. Well, I mean, maybe it will. Um, or you can go explore some other avenues and, you know, try that out. That's the the great part about this game is it's, it's barrier to entry is so low compared to other tabletop games. Um, it it doesn't hurt you to start over, so to speak, or to like approach the the list from from scratch, uh, or your you know your strategy from scratch. Like all you, you're only going to get better, and you're you're only doing yourself a favor for for you know being inquisitive. Because you're kind of a person that starts with models and then goes to list building. I'm curious, do you use Universal Battle? Is that part of your repertoire? Absolutely. I use Universal Battle um, pretty frequently, um, mostly because we don't have a regular hobby night or hobby store um, here in the DFW area. And we're also pretty far spread apart, too. Um, all of the Dallas guys, um, we're all a good 30 to 45 minutes plus uh, from any other one specific person. Um, and even then, uh, a hobby store that we could all meet at like centrally is anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes from that person. So it's really hard to get us together for a game. Um, we'll meet in person for some stuff. Um, about once a quarter is what it averages out to um, in Denton at Robert Zimmerman's place. He's uh, got a, a large garage. He can fit about six of us in. We do like three, uh, three to four games, depending on if we want to open up the garage door and throw a, throw a, a table out in the driveway or something. But aside from that, most of my practice games come from UB. Um, I play against Kyle Poole a lot, um, and I'll let him stress test my lists. Uh, and what I like about that is Kyle will throw the most off the wall at you, the most zany like builds to stress test your list. And I appreciate that from him because I have to adapt to that is these wacky off the wall things. So by the time I get to a tournament, and I'm facing like something expected, something normal. I'm ready for that. Like I, if I can handle the nutty crap, I can handle the basic stuff. Like, oh, I'm I'm ready for for you know, whatever this is because I've I've already faced this, oh, wacky goblin build thing he's doing, or since it's UB, whatever he wants to throw at me. Because oftentimes I'll send him my list first, and I'll say break it, you know, stress test it. Let's see what let's see what we can do, um, and then he'll he'll put me in the dirt <laughs> and I'll go back to the drawing board. <laughs> yeah. We played against uh, Robert Zimmerman at Jeff and I did at the naughty or nice team tournament at uh, Mark Cox's house. And we got to get him on the show, Rob. He has a game website, the layer tabletop ho uh, hobbies where they sell like Kings of war stuff, a good discount. I talked to him about trying to get him on because there's not a lot of uh, websites you know, there's some great ones like Troll Horde, you know, Chris Fisher, but there's not a lot of uh, website stores selling Mantic stuff in the U.S. So mm -hmm. we, and he's a good guy. We and, need to get him And they the do – him and him and uh, Travis Cook do commission painting as well. For example, Jeff Radigan's, uh, you know, uh, naughty army that he took to Masters this past year with all the all the flying uh, Ember Sprites and that whole kerfuffle. That was them. That Travis and Robert painted that. Um like that was they took that on as commission. So they do they do fantastic work. Um, he's got 
in his garage like so many different armies from when in the days when they played 40k and everything that he's just been sitting on and the, his his painting is fantastic of course like jeremy said they're a us-based mantic dealer um so yeah here's my pl- my shameless plug for them check those guys out the lair <laughs> they're great <laughs> talk to you about clocks how's the potential use of a clock impact your list building the use of the clock itself doesn't necessarily impact the list building because it's it's kind of a constant. It's there. Like uh, I, I, I'm not gonna use it as a, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, as a variable for my for my list building. It's just it's a constant. I have to, it's always gonna be there. I can't play around it. Um, and I don't have I don't build armies that are uh, big enough to be threatened by the the prospect of a clock. Uh, like if I was playing like the Jeff O'Neill goblins or anything like that, that requires like you know down to the second. Um, uh, precision, um, which I know is counterintuitive because I said at the top of the episode I would like to play a trash type army like that. Where I am currently, the clock doesn't impact uh, my list building. Um, I just kind of throw the army down, push it forward, uh, and roll some dice <laughs> and hope I come out with a W. <laughs> Do you use combat groups or sometimes known as battle groups when you're building? To an extent, I think it, it really depends on how I'm approaching that particular army build um, for a while there with the, with the dwarf formation, like that was definitely a, a battle group in and of itself. Um, so I, I don't build the list with battle groups in mind per se. I approach them. F- I approach it from what, what role can these one or two units fill? Um, are they my, you know, hammer anvil? Are they my chaff delivery system? Um, what role do they fill? Do I have an, and do I, when I look at the list from a you know thirty thousand foot view, do I have enough tools in this box to deal with, um, you know, a lot of like heavy movement speed lists, or you know, lists with lots of crushing strength, or things that are going to outmaneuver me in some way, which are most of them because again playing dwarfs, uh, but I, I approach it not so much from battle groups, but from what role can a unit or particular units fill. And if that means deploying them together as a group, then great. Um, but that might change from game to game to game. Um, I think with, so like with the, the dwarf formation again, for example, um, if I'm facing someone that's got, um, you know, a cavalry hammer, well, I'm going to try my damnedest to get the, the two phalanx, uh, regiments and the, the two bulwalker regiments in the uh, formation across from them. Uh, if that's not the case, well, I might have one go off to sit on an objective and I might have the other one stick closer to the line or on a flank or something uh, and split them up. It, I really approach it from, I want to be sure I have enough, uh, options, uh, available to me so that I can be ready for all comers. Um, and if that means deploying some stuff as, as a group once and then not again, then so be it. Talk to me about the number of drops in a list. I'm not going to say I don't pay attention to it, um, but I I do tend to notice a a average number that I, I stick around. I think it just kind of happens that way. It's usually let's see, I'm looking, what is this list here uh, for like 2,300 somewhere between you know 13, 14 drops, something like that. Um, really wanting to drive up the unit strength more than the number of drops um, for. Uh, Alamo, not Alamo, sorry, for Lone Wolf a couple of years ago, uh, this one was, I think, 18 drops, 17 drops, but it had a lot more chaff in it. Um, and the the unit strength wasn't near as, in hindsight, wasn't near as uh, big as I would have liked it to be. Um, so I, I don't approach the list from so much like, 
I have to hit a certain number of drops or I, uh, you know, I, I need to have more than this number of drops. Um, that's not really a, a optimal, like or an optimization that I look for. Um, I kind of just, again, I, I build the list based on being sure I have enough tools in the toolbox to, to work on the table. Um, but there is, it seems to be a common denominator around like 13, 15 drops, something like that. So you mentioned tools there, and I think that's a really great perspective to build when you're a lower to middle to as you're you know growing in the different table sections in a tournament, right? You start thinking about that idea is your army just isn't an army. It's an army of different types of units that do different things. I found that way personally with chaff. I didn't really, when I first started playing, I didn't, I didn't really think about chaff. I wanted big hunky units and I wanted all the cool stuff. And then I was like, okay, let me throw some chaff. And then I would throw it out too early or whatever. Describe to me your, your love, hate or your love affair, your relationship with chaff. How did that evolve in your play? Um, it started, you know, you know, back in the Warhammer fantasy days when I was like, you know, I, I started hearing once I started playing at tournaments and, wasn't just playing with my buddies anymore. Um, yeah, I started hearing people talk about, oh, you need to chaff this unit up, or how much chaff is in in, in a particular list, yada yada. And I just fell into the self-deprecating humor of, eh, everything's chaff when you're at the lower tables, um, just to compensate for the fact that I wasn't that great of a player, and I had you know high school money, which was none, or like when I was in college, I had college money, which was also none, uh, <laughs> to to flesh out my army further. Um, and so I took the everything is chaff approach. Um, it wasn't until I got to Kings where I started to realize more of um, their usefulness in that toolbox as, you know, hammer delivery systems or, um, you know, taking a spare chaff unit to go sit on an objective late or something along those lines. Um, in hell, even when I first started Kings, I was the same way as you, Jeremy. I'm like, I want big honking units that is going to go smash face um, and then and then win a lot of games. Well, I found out pretty quick. There's like the, the whole peace trading thing like if i've if i've got a big horde of shield breakers that are you know cool they're going to decimate a piece of chaff well now on the return they're getting charged by something that's going to pick them up in one go like a you know giant block of cavalry on the charge or something along those lines um so that's when i again getting my teeth kicked in uh, with a frequency uh and learning from day to day <laughs> uh you when you learn uh that i needed to have chaff as a utility piece as a it's a something else i had to account for in list building um for my own chaff or when list building uh and thinking about chaff removal for my opponent's arm armies whatever those may be so if it's some sort of light shooting to pick up lighter chaff or um in my case with the dwarfs sometimes running troops of iron guard because they're defense six high nerve um your opponent has to dedicate a good chunk of resources to removing that piece from the board. Um, and if they're dedicating resources there, it means they're not dedicating them elsewhere, which is beneficial to you. So the, I've, I've, I've come to embrace chaff as a whole, um, a lot more in the last couple of years, um, because I had effectively next to no uh, competitive knowledge of tabletop wargaming until I started Kings. Like, it, yes, yes, I would go to I'd go to Lone Wolf or I'd you know play in one days, um, but that's not really the same as like playing consistently um, at that level. So now that I know, um, it's it's definitely something to account for. It's it, it's an integral part of the game, especially with so much peace trading um, and how the presence or lack thereof of chaff affects the board state as a whole. 
Yeah, I think there's certain inflection points both on the tabletop side and on the hobby side where if you feel like in your path you've reached a barrier, there's certain things to think about. Like I think on the hobby side, if you've reached a barrier and you feel like no matter what you do, you can't get better at painting, try a wet palette or maybe upgrade to a nicer brush or maybe there's certain things you can try to kind of, you know, that are good places to start when you want to break barriers. And I think on the gameplay tabletop side, chaff is one of those things that if you're really struggling with a list or you just can't win, take a second and think to yourself, what's my chaff or what's my chaff removal? And if there isn't an easy answer to that question, that's like a good place to start. Exactly. And now you're challenging yourself and you're going to grow from it. Whether it's like you said, the, from the hobby aspect, go get a wet palette, try the airbrush, something, something new, something different. Try it with your list building add chaff, take away chaff, think about what you can use as chaff removal or what you can use for chaff in a pinch. If it's late game and you need to throw something away just to stop your opponent from getting to a particular objective, um, it forces you to approach the game from a different way, uh, from a different way of thinking about it. And again, you're just, you're just going to grow from that. Every unit is chaff if they have to be. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. But since it's a peace treating game, you've got to do it with the best return on that investment, right? Exactly. You have to think about it a couple turns in advance. Almost like I think the more you can think about that your units aren't dying, it's what am I trading this unit for? Exactly. It's death is a trade. Mm-hmm. And you want to try to make the best value trades for your units so that they're not dying for nothing. And I think the more you can conceptualize the game in that way, again, is another inflection point in trying to break through play play growth barriers is thinking about the game is not just I want to kill. It's what am I trading what for? Exactly. Is this piece going to be um, – uh, am I using it to put my opponent in a bad spot when this – when this piece gets picked up, um, are they just a speed bump? So my, so now I've got something in the way between, uh, my opponent and my battle line. Um, are they sitting on objective? Can they help take an objective away from somebody else by them dying? It's like, like Rob said, it's, it's, it's the peace training. Now it's not so much just, Hey, they need to get their points back or they need to pick up X number of points to be useful. It's, it's peace trading. And another, I think one of those uh, inflection points and maybe not as great as the other ones is sometimes you'll see a list, right? Where every single unit has a item, right? Has a magical artifact. And by the end, you count up those points and sometimes it can be like, wow, man, that's a lot of points. Uh, and But I think some of those lists can still be good, right? But where do you sort of fall on that magical artifact uh, bell curve? Is it if I have a couple extra points, I'll get some. Is there certain key things you like to group together, or what's your thoughts? For there? sure, I, I think with there, there's a couple that I I approach as kind of like I I feel like I have to include them. I won't say they're like a blanket auto include because someone's going to disagree with me inevitably. Um, but when I approach it, I feel like I have to have a magic item for terrain mitigation of some kind. Um, if I have an item like brew of strength or brew of sharpness that's like an offensive one that's going to make a unit that much more of a problem for my opponent to deal with then i'll include that one in there but i'm not just i'm not throwing them in willy-nilly they, there has to be a a a reason i can point to to have them there um on the inclusion and then towards the end of the of the list when i'm fleshing it out if i need five ten points here and there i have some favorites at that point size that i'll i'll throw into the list just to get me to the the whatever point i'm building towards um Orbitaring presence is a, is one of my favorites. Like if I've got ten points, you can bet your ass that's going on a uh, on a unit of Iron Guard because now there's a defense six regiment with fifteen seventeen nerve and unit strength four. Um, so that's definitely one, definitely one of my favorites there. Um, of course, blade of slashing, mace of crushing, those are always good to throw in if you've got five points to spare. Um, but I don't approach list building of like 
it, you know, I hesitate to, to put myself in the camp of I'm definitely in the more toys, less, or sorry, more boys, less toys. Um, because I, I realize it's situational. Um, it goes back to the concept of I need to make sure there's enough utility in this toolbox um, to answer whatever questions my opponent may be posing to me on the table. Um, so any magic item that's included in my list has a purpose. It's there for the efficiency. It's not there for the sake of being there. Like It has to justify its cost. Randy mentions there something, Robin. I don't know if we've ever talked about it that much on the show but conceptualizing a game state is either asking or answering a question because i think that's an interesting way to look at a game of kings of war is that you want your army in any given turn to propose a question that your opponent has to solve and you're hoping they don't do a well job and they add it up wrong and they don't solve that question can you tell that kyle pool is like my usual sparring partner because i'm starting to talk like that There's two people that Kyle Poole being one of them that talks about this topic a lot and listen to our last list builder episode. Luke goes off on a, a, a pretty long uh, discussion on this, the same topic. It's an important thing. I don't think that a lot of us, I know me until they brought it up with me. I, I never really considered it. Um, you, you know, you, you're either asking questions of your opponent or you're preparing to answer their questions. It's, it's another way of saying, are you being proactive or reactive? Exactly. Yeah. And again, I'm not smart enough to kick everyone's ass across the country at this game, but I'm smart enough to know to surround myself with people that know what they're doing. <laughs> but I think what you're talking about, Randy, is you're talking about there are certain areas of thought, spectrums of the mind <laughs> that you must <laughs> enter into for intellectual and wargaming growth, right? I think that to begin to understand conceptually these ideas of asking and answering questions, thinking about you know, reactive and proactive. These are the sort of elements that are may feel esoteric or untethered to the actual game on the table that you're playing. But in fact, these are the frames of mind and the uh, how you interpret the game that you need to do to be able to get better. There's a reason why when you ask these sort of questions are to good players, they know exactly what you're talking about, right? Because even these good players have different play styles. They're, they have a, a similar sort of chambers of the mind created and how they think about the game. I know we talked about some other things like drops, but talk to me about unit strength and its impact on your list building. I like the higher unit strength lists. Um, I feel like that's just from from one standpoint, it's it's more forgiving. If you've got a lot of unit strength in your list, you can afford to make a couple more mistakes in the game than you would be able to if you were playing like a an elite alpha strike army, um, or you know some anything else that can be defined as like a scalpel army. Um, I prefer the high unit strength lists because it gives me uh, more options. Like if it's the 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 scenarios that give me fits are the ones where I can be spread thin from objective placement or uh, because my opponent can just has outdrops me and can go wide, um, and you know force me to deploy wider than I would like to. Because again, as a dwarf player, I want to be tight and compact. I'm playing that castle up style. Um, so, with that being said, the higher unit strength is is more helpful in that regard. Um, because again, I, I can make a couple more mistakes here and there and still have a little extra unit strength on the, on the back end to uh, help accommodate for that. Um, but with that being said, I, I don't have a lot of individuals uh, in my lists um, mostly because again, I want them to fill a specific role or utility. Um, 
if they're there, it's for I want them for the Radiance of Life, or because they have Mighty and they're going to be a speed bump for for my opponent. Um, they're serving a very specific role. They're not just there for oh. They're, they just inspire. That's all they do. Now, if they're going to inspire, I want something that's got unit strength. I want a Lord on Large Beast. I want a Gallic's Fury. I want a Manifestation of Bale. Um, I want something with, or, you know, an Abyssal Warlock. I want something with unit strength that's going to do that because unit strength is important at, on, you know, at the end of turn six. Um, so that's, that's how I approach unit strength. I want, uh, efficient and effective use of unit strength as opposed to just it just having it there does that make sense i feel like i might be rambling a little it does it's for you it's less about the number of unit strength or the amount obviously you want more and really more about how many scoring units you have yes you just want things to have unit strength so they can play that role in the game exactly exactly because I, I know in asking you this question, I can I already know as a dwarf player what your answer will be. But scenario is really important, right? It's how we win the game. Absolutely. So, I mean, is that something sort of you attribute to sort of your dwarf roots and thinking about just how is your army going to play in different scenarios? Because I think really that's what dwarfs, how dwarfs win, right? They're never going to steam up a side and turn you sideways and come, you know, straight across, kill everything. They're going to beat you in the scenario. Yeah, exactly. And the, the problem there is with a lot of scenarios for dwarfs, um, it ends up being N plus one. Like you're beating your opponent by one objective point, a lot of small wins um, or clawing back to draws or small losses. Um, very rarely am I going to find myself in a scenario where I am just 20 owing my opponent or 21, uh, depending on the uh, scoring type for the tournament. Um, that's, that's very rarely going to happen. Um, so you have to be full. Well, I have to be uh super precise uh, with my deployment and how I'm approaching each scenario. Um, because I, if I spread myself too thin, um, trying to get objectives across the board, I'm getting tabled because then I'm, you know, something's getting breaking through my lines and now it's going to just hit, hit every flank across the board. Um, if I deploy too thin or sorry, too, too compact. Um, well, now I'm not reaching those objectives on the far side of the tables. So it's, it's a very, um, zero sum not zero sum it's a very delicate balance um between like getting it right and getting it wrong um and i'm still really bad at it <laughs> there's a reason you don't see me in like top battle in anywhere um it's i i get it wrong more often than i get it right but damn it feels good when you get it right <laughs> mm-hmm. oh yeah that's it i would rather sometimes lose my whole army and win by scenario then I would get lucky and, uh, you know, two 11s, someone's right flank and turn turn in and uh, roll them up. You know what I mean? Because those are the victories that I think feel most sweet, you know, are the ones you, where you beat your opponent on scenario play. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's always really satisfying. Um, and those are always the close ones, too, when it comes down to like, you know, bottom of six, bottom of seven. Um, and it comes down to like one or two rolls towards the end to see who gets which objective or, you know, something along those lines. Like those really close tight games are the, like the most fun ones in my opinion, because it's the back and forth and uh, you know, the, the ripping defeat from the jaws of victory <laughs> as I'm so prone to do. <laughs> like those are, those are fun. Do you find it hard when you're list building often list builders will, will be like, how is my army going to play in this type of scenario? How is my army going to play in this type of scenario? I mean, you exist and play within a region with tournaments with very unique scenarios. That's a way to put that it. Are, yeah, <laughs> that are uh, uh, colorful. Yeah. <laughs> unique and uh, intrinsically bespoke, shall we say? I uh, know you're giving them too much credit. Okay. 
<laughs> I kid, I kid. We all know which Mark can sh- uh, shove Texas Hold'em up where I've told him many a times, <laughs> but uh, I love you, Mark. But that 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 aside, how do you think about building an, an army to do scenarios in a region that has so many wacky scenarios? <laughs> it, it, how do, I, how do I play scenario in a, in a region that doesn't do scenarios or doesn't do book scenarios? It does them, but they're, who knows? Who, you never know. Are you going to be kicking frisbee balls? Or are you going to be running or sideways? Whatever or whatever other you know. kind of like wacky sprinkles are on top of these games and or on top of these scenarios and whatnot. Um, the only thing for certain in the in the Texas tournaments and their scenarios is that they're they're going to be off the wall. Samurai is usually the only tournament on our on my calendar at least that plays scenarios out of the book. The other ones will start from those scenarios as a basis, but then add a lot of extra fluff on top, which is fun, but it makes it difficult to list build for ahead of time. So I don't think about it. Um, I I know that I'm going to have some wacky stuff to deal with, uh, so I try to build a balanced list best I can, um, and then I ship it off to. Kyle, Tom, Dustin, <laughs> say, hey, what's wrong with it? Break it for me. Tell me I'm stupid. Um, fix it. <laughs> um, and then uh, I, I go to the tournament from there and get surprised when I see the tournament pack, <laughs> which is which is a terrible way of looking at it, I'm sure. But if, if, it was a, if I lived in a region that did book scenarios more often, I could probably – plan on those and plan around those a bit better. But since I'm not, it's, I guess it's like a traumatic response. <laughs> it's like, no, I can't do these wacky scenarios anymore. Just let me play the game. <laughs> As someone that plays a lot of dwarves, I'm curious, how do you account for speed? I guess, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to speculate to say that you're really not worried about your speed. It's really about how do I counter their speed, oh, but 100%. talk to me about how speed and or flyers are handled in your list building process. Um, I'll say it this way. I'm never throwing the first punch. I just plan from that up, up front. Um, I know I'm always getting, I'm taking the first charge. Um, so I have to plan accordingly with stuff that's able to take a punch and then can get out of the way in some form or fashion, whether that be from dying or I can shuffle them aside um, from checkerboard deployment and whatnot. So I can get my hammers in there from flyers. I want to be sure I have enough units enough drops in my list that i can deploy in waves um to catch the flyers you know in in between um or uh deny them the uh well not to say deny them but to make it very risky for them to try and get around me because i i play tight and compact um so if i i know if i rock up to a table and my opponent's got you know a couple of Pegasus or a couple of vampire lords or something, things I know are going to be flying around. Um, well, that affects my deployment at that, at that point, but I've already prepared for it on the list building side of things. I want stuff with phalanx. I want stuff with uh, high defense that can, that those flyers will bounce off of. Um, if it's like flying chaff, like gargoyles or something cool, that's going to be my first target for, for shooting. Those are going off the table. You can, this is a no fly zone. <laughs> Um, but to, to, to plan for those from the list building stage, you, you've got to have, well, I'll say you, I approach it from, uh, a sense of, I, I need something that again, is going to ask more questions of my opponent's flyers than they're asking of me by having them, which to touch on that again, is just, I, I realized anyone that might be listening, that's, it might sound really convoluted, uh, upfront about the whole asking questions and answering questions, things like that. Another way to think about it is just threat projection. Um, I am trying to deter my opponent from projecting 
threat with their flyers to my back line or to my flanks by having answers like something that's a high defense that's gonna that they would bounce off of uh, and then get countercharged and grind against or things that negate uh, thunderous like phalanx or anything along those lines. Those are things you have to or I have to keep in mind when I'm list building um, because you're you're going to come up against them, <laughs> especially in, in this region. Talk to me about Ordered March. Man, I am so excited about that. I have played only, oh gosh, I think only one game <laughs> with, with it since it's come out um, as a warm-up for Bayou next month uh, in Houston. But man, is it great. Um, it's I mean, they're still they're still speed eight dwarfs, but having the option to do their full eight move uh, eight inch move and pivot, uh, just it as a dwarf player you've got to have those angles down on lock. And now that I can move effectively as twice as fast as I was before, and still being able to pivot an angle to uh, affect the board state in a way that I feel might be advantageous to me, uh, baiting my opponent into ill advised charges uh, because then if they pick something up they're going to get pinched or anything along those lines um ordered march just really it i'm excited to see how much more competitive it makes dwarves but i am not an authority on it so i i can't i can't uh assume that it's going to be great but it looks like it's going to be great uh off the start just because it gives you that much more maneuverability um and a little bit more options to work with it gives the dwarves more utility than they had previously um the one i'm really excited about uh is now if you play free dwarfs you get a you get a <laughs> a flyer on a 50 mil uh that's got unit strength They're like oh, this is great this is you can't you can't bait a dwarf player with that and expect them not to take it i've got two sitting on my paint desk in there that i finished up this week <laughs> and playing you a few times randy uh one thing i like about your game is that is that reactive play style i the more I play, the more I'm drawn to that. And that's funny considering my main army for a long time was a bas- base alien trademark speed. Uh, but then I found that like, I don't know, I sort of in, in, in my evolution as a player found the joys of reactive gameplay. So when it comes to deployment, I find, and I don't know if these are linked being a reactive player, I tend to have 80 to 90% of my deployment. It's the same every game. I'm setting up my stuff here. This is where it's going to go. I'm going to move up. I'm going to make you do your thing, and then I'll react. So I'm wondering, do you find yourself in deployment having a a preset deployment? And if so, is that linked to you wanting to be a reactive player, or do they have nothing to do with each other and I'm a moron? I think to some extent they're they're probably connected. Um, uh, I I do find myself deploying pretty much the same way damn near every time, Um, and it would be very scenario-dependent. Otherwise, um, keeping everything close and, and tight together. Um, if I, there's, there's an objective off to the side that I think I can uh, I can capitalize on early, I might I might deploy one or two things close to it um, to go contest that objective or um, claim it without taking too much away from my main force. Um, yeah, 90, 95% of the time, I'm deploying the exact same way. Um, with the, I'm trying to think of a, a good example here from a recent tournament uh even even with the the force of the abyss list when i was at um when i was at best of the rest over the summer uh it was it was pretty much the same deployment every time like the the mollocks are there to be hammers the tortured souls are there to deliver the mollocks so they go in front of the mollocks um the oh shoot what's the uh, zazu the uh, the special warlock he goes right in between 
everybody. So he's got the inspiring there for whatnot. Can fly Bane Chan if need be. Lightning Bolt to whatever chaff is in the way. Um, the Flame Bears are going to be as their own battle group off to the side. Um, and whatever terrain is mo- most advantageous or what shooting line is most advantageous. Um, it's all it's all very samey same. Uh, and then the Afrit and uh, Bale would deploy together and go harass down a flank or a back line. Um, so I I, th- I think that's probably just me. Um, I don't. I, I like I've joked before already. I'm not smart enough to approach this game from like I there's an optimum deployment that I will have every time if I could just find it. No, get my army on the table. Let's get going. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wonder like listeners if you think that the people who are reactive players or who think about the reactive bo- versus pro uh, proactive are, are pre deployment as far as having an idea of how you want to deploy is that sort of just go together like peanut butter and chocolate with reactive style (laughs) gameplay because what you're one of the things that you're saying that resonates me is you have a certain amount of mental bandwidth right you have a certain amount that's a good way of putting that yeah (laughs) mental capital right in a game where it's like i have this amount of resource that i can use to think about what i want to do during the game so if you can identify the areas of the game that you can withdraw capital from thus you have that capital spend to spend in other areas Mm -hmm. i think that's a useful way to think about when you're looking at, at player growth in that if I'm taking mental energy out of thinking about how I want to deploy because I'm going to deploy this way, if that intrinsically works well with the reactive play style, then it's like a double positive in that you now have done something that is giving you capital to spend in other areas of the game, that mental energy. Yeah, like do I need to get another beer before this turn or after this next turn? That's kind of where a lot of mine – Well, I'm goes. thinking about how to out, out, outmaneuver my opponent and you're thinking about beer, but it's cool. No, no, to, you know, my, my, my joke there is that I feel like the reactionary play style lends itself to the sociable aspect of the game as well um, because I'm not, I, I'm not having to think super hard about uh, – striking first striking hard and being sure I get to the object like a specific objective before my opponent or before I go to a different objective um I can just put the army down and play and be social and you know have a good time because part of that sort of preset I may have in my mind okay this is how I want to deploy this is going to be my center this is going to be my one piece that I deploy in front of the forest right mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. this is my one piece that I'm going to deploy in front of the x piece of terrain i mean you think about that at all in your list design sort of you mentioned you want to have at least sort of one pathfinder item or or how to sort of terrain work itself into your army design absolutely um i i definitely use uh terrain uh to my advantage as much as i can or as much as i can um because that lends itself to my grindy um reactive play style um i want to get into terrain into forests up against obstacles or uh, uh or buildings that's going to force my opponent into uh less than ideal charges um so i don't so much build with terrain in mind but i deploy with terrain in mind now i know i just said that about 95 percent of the time my deployment is the same and that's true but the terrain on the board just d- determines where i'm putting the army um, if I want to stick my front line, my, my first wave, which I more often than not I do, I want to stick them in a forest um, so that they are – my opponent is more likely to bounce off them. They're weaker coming in. Um, then I can you know, counterpunch it more effectively that way. Um, that's how I approach it. There's, we play with a lot of terrain down here, a lot of big forests and, and big pieces of terrain and whatnot. So I, I try to get into forests as much as possible. Um, just because again, it lends itself to that defensive uh, reactionary play style. And then because I've got something that's going to, uh, because I have a, a unit that's going to negate 
terrain to some extent, um, typically a hammer, uh, then I can come counterpunch in the terrain or play around it to whatever extent may be. Um, so again, to answer your question, it's not so much that I'm building the list with terrain in mind, but I'm definitely deploying with the terrain in mind. Do you consider the first turn or the turn seven dice rolls when building a list? Again, not so much when building the list. It's just kind of when I when I get to the table and realize, or, and we can find out what scenario we're playing. Um, that's that's typically when those decisions come to mind. Because again, it just like the just like the clock, it's it's a constant. It's always going to be there. It's it's not a, a a a variable per se that you can, or at least that I feel that you can prepare for effectively. Because it's it's um, it's one of those random things. Either you'll get first turn or you won't. Either there'll be a turn seven or there won't. Um, I don't feel like you can effectively, and maybe I'm wrong. I bet the, the pro players will tell me uh, that I'm an idiot, but I feel like I can't uh, plan around those two random variables. Um, I feel like I have to just go out and play my game. Sometimes I wonder, you know, how they have those blackjack player cards, right, that you can sit with at the table where it's like, okay, I have a 15 and the dealer has a 17. What should I do? I wonder if there's like we make like the first turn Kings of War card. Okay, I'm playing this army <laughs> against this army in this scenario. Oh man! I, if I win, if I win the turn to roll first, should I go first? Because I think you what you're saying really resonates. I think in general, if you're if you're new to the game, go first if you have the option to go first. Probably uh, as you start to get a little bit better, I think there's a lot of times. And you were talking about this on an episode, Rob, I was just listening to the idea of being able to go second allows you to know for sure when the game is how the game is going to end. You have that agency of moving on to objectives. That is a really interesting question around when to go first or when to go second. One, one, you know, if you have a lot of unit strength one or now unit strength two flyers, going second can be really powerful, right? Because you can move on to, you know, objectives or whatever. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I think incorporating to, uh, into that into a list being such a random variable role, like you could go through a whole tournament and never win the role to go first. Absolutely. And there's, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's probably a handful of savants that have figured out that if then scenario that you were talking about, and I'm sure the, they're the ones that have won masters already. <laughs> like I'm sure those, those types of lists don't exist in a like tangible analog format, like a, like a card or something, but someone's got it locked away up here. <laughs> And you see it with chess players where they can look at a board and they just have a sense. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you ask them to describe why they feel a certain way about it and they can't. They can just look at it and they see all the permutations having after having played so many games. There's no position that they haven't had before at some point. It's, it's right? second nature. So they can just pull from that, yeah. that bank of information yeah. yes. without, without thinking it, about it the implicit or implicit bias of hand repetition bias, right? Of like you played so many hands of the same thing that you've seen often your subconscious is pulling up uh, scenarios from your past and your instinct usually sometimes can be informed by subconsciously or consciously what worked or didn't work before. So that's why I always, when I'm in a war gaming table, if I don't know what to do, I do the one, two, three, what do you want to do sort of internal question. And then I just do that thing. Whatever my instinct is telling me, if I can't decide what to do intellectually, I just go with the instinct because I'm hoping that's being informed by all the games I've played up to this point. You heard it here. If you're stuck on a scenario, you're stuck on a, a part in the game, just ask yourself, what would Jeremy do? 
Oh yeah, it goes for everybody. Like, you know, yeah, like one, <laughs> two, three, and then you ask the question, right? You know, yep. it's like you know, make the person do the quick fire, you know, response. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you are your your you are your own sensei. You know, you you can help learn from yourself, basically. Yeah, yeah, makes makes total sense. As we're you know getting deep, and we're going to hear a, a specific list you have. Is there anything that you see or that you maybe in your early list building you completely overlooked? Or anything that really wasn't a part of your mind in list building that as you've progressed and gotten better that all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, yeah, I think about this all the time. Is there anything that uh, resonates with you with that question? I mean, we touched on it a little bit, just the the uh, advent of like chaff in my, in my game and in my list building, um, how to uh, effectively include it or remove it uh, from my opponent's side of the table, uh, whatever that case may be. That's that I definitely the the way I think about the game has definitely changed um, from when I first started. Um, instead of like, oh, this is a really strong piece. This could probably kill a lot of stuff. It is okay. What there's like a like a checklist of what can this spe- specific unit do? Um, is it good at just setting objectives? Is it a delivery piece? Is it a hammer? Is it an anvil? Um, what is it multifaceted in some way? Those are the units that I'm looking at more closely versus like the one trick ponies. I want something that's going to be um, hyper efficient, which might be a byproduct of playing in this region that, you know, all the top players just do these hyper efficient um, borderline spammy, or in some cases spammy lists. Um, (laughs) So you want that, that uh, abundance of efficiency. Um, And that really has affected the way I, I approach list building there has to be a justifiable reason for something in the army um from a competitive standpoint uh from a hobby standpoint shit if it looks cool put it in (laughs) yeah and before you can solve the mysteries of life you got to know what questions to ask and that's uh, and we've talked about it already a bunch this episode but i think as we transition to hearing about your specific list that's one thing that when i think about that question of what is overlooked it's that idea of learning which questions to ask and not so much, like you said, this unit is super strong. It's okay. How am I going to hold a middle or how am I going to deliver a speed flank or, or how do I play this scenario or whatever? And even if you don't have all the answers to those questions, right? Step one is learning which questions to ask. Right. And, you know, trying to figure out you know, like you said, which questions to ask or, uh, what ways can you use this unit to project threat across the table at objectives, at units, whatever that may be? Um, because that that's how you ask questions is projecting threat. Well, let's get into the specific list section of the show. Uh, and Randy has got a great list to, to share with us. And so let's start with what's the background on this list you're going to share? So this list, um, as I mentioned before, most of my list building, I bounce off of Tom Annis and Dustin Howard and Kyle Poole because, I, again, I will seek out people better than me at this game and, and learn from them. Like what's the, what's the joke we, uh, we, we talk about from college? It's uh, if you steal from one source, it's plagiarism. If you steal from multiple, it's research. And I do a lot of research. So <laughs> this list that I've got here is one that I built um, before I shipped it off for um, corrections uh, <laughs> from, from everyone else, um, just to, give, to try and give everyone the best idea about how I approach uh, list building. Um, before it's then picked apart by people that know what they're doing. 
Um, so I built this list as a 2300 Imperial Dwarf list, and this was my first stab um, at the uh, Clash of Kings 24 uh, updates uh, for this that just came out this past month. Um, so to start off the list, uh, I've got two regiments of Iron Guard with throwing mastiffs. Uh, one has the Orb of Towering Presence. I've got a horde of shield breakers with throwing mastiffs and blessing of the gods. Um, I have two regiments of bulwarkers, uh, both with throwing mastiffs. Uh, oh, sorry, I, I, I misspoke. Two hordes of bulwarkers with throwing mastiffs. Um, three troops of sharpshooters. A steel behemoth upgraded to Gauntlet's Fury. Uh, Garrick Heavy Hand. Two steel juggernauts and Faber Ironheart. And that comes out to uh, 13 drops with 26 unit strength. What do you think this army does well? This this army grinds well. Um, this army, uh, between the two Iron Guard regiments that are going to be tough to chew through, the two hordes of bulwarkers, um, and the uh, effectively three steel juggernauts, one of which is Faber. Um, this this unit, or sorry, this list grinds really well. Um, plus the addition of the in, uh, the Iron Resolve aura from the Galax Fury uh, and the Radiance of Life from Garrick Heavy Hand. The center battle line for this list um, doesn't go away. Um, it is there for the long haul. Uh, and then on the other side of that, it forces the opponent to come to you because there's so much unit strength to chew through. Um, and I'm going to hit you with the three troops of sharpshooters, the steel behemoth, the three steel juggernauts, well, two juggernauts in favor. Um, and let's see what else I have shooting. And of course, all the throwing mastiffs and whatnot. It, it, it forces you to come play me. Like I was talking about at the top of this episode, I'm going to push this stuff forward, stick it in terrain, make it, you know, real tough to pick up so that you have to dedicate a lot of unit, uh, a lot of resources to picking me up. Uh, and then from there, I'm, I'm going to just, grind you away. Uh, the sharpshooters are going to sit on objectives in the back of the board. Um, Garrick heavy is going to be a speed bump when he needs to be, uh, Faber and the other two steel juggernauts are going to provide inspiring off on the flanks, uh, or right in the center line. Uh, and the, the two hordes of bulwarkers are going to grind away. The shield breakers with the blessing of the gods is my mega hammer. Cause now that shield breakers have crushing two, how huge is that change for oh, shield breakers? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It makes them a legitimate face melter unit. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and because they hit on threes and I remember from playing with dwarves in the formation, I would often put, you know, um, brew a strength on the ironclad horde that would also hit on threes. Well, because of that formation, they were elite hitting on threes. So since I don't have the formation in this list, I just gave them blessing of the gods. So now I have an elite crushing two uh, unit that hits on threes and it's a giant block of nerve at 21, 23. Um, yes, it's defense four, but ideally I am using this as a uh, second line removal uh, or it's being delivered by the steel juggernauts uh, or something along those lines. It's I'm, if I'm, if that's getting charged first, I've done something terribly wrong. <laughs> and you know, one of my regular play partners is Kyle Timberlake. Yeah. He's been sort of rocking, rocking infantry drawers since him and uh, a guy named Kevin Von Felt, who I don't know if you hadn't ever met him. He might've, I think he was out of the scene before you, you were around, but he played infantry drawers too. So how huge are, and also speak to if there's other all-stars, but I think like heavy hand and Faber are so good. Dwarves have some of the best, like special named characters, I think in Kings of war, uh, like what are some of your top 
your 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 MVPs on the list. <laughs> uh, Faber definitely like he's he's damn near auto include. Um, I think a lot of dwarf players tell you he, he is auto include. I just don't want to speak in that absolute. Um, but fact of the matter is he's in every list I build. Um, he's fantastic for just twenty five points more than a, a base steel juggernaut. You're getting two extra attacks, two extra nerve, um, and wild charge D three on top of that. He's he's really great. Um, Typically, I'll run a Steel Juggernaut with, if I've got five extra points, they're a great target for a Healing Brew, um, which I don't know if I mentioned at the top of this as I was reading through it, but one of the Steel Juggernauts in this list does have a Healing Brew. Because um, then for five points, you're effectively giving the Juggernaut an extra point or two of Nerve, um, depending on how how it shakes down, how many wounds you can get back off of it. Um, but yeah, Faber is, is fantastic. Um, I've only recently started including Garrick. Um, I used him at Alamo this past year. Uh, this past uh, November, actually. Um, and he, he's great. He just sits behind your main line, providing Radiance of Life um, and Crush 3 when he need, you need to go add a couple of extra attacks in there. Um, or towards late game, um, he's a he's mighty, so he's a great speed bump. And you can put him between a unit and an objective, and they have to go through him, which is no small feat because he's defense 6, 14, 16. I think he's a, he's a great little piece. Um, and a... And a not sound like a broken record and name all of the special characters in the list, but Gallic's Fury, same thing. I think that's a fantastic piece. Uh, the, the tricky thing there for newer players or people that haven't played with um, chariots all that often, it's the only chariot model in the um, in the army. Um, so you have to account for the wide flanks. You know, it's 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 longer than it is. Uh, sorry, it's it's deeper than it is wide um so you have to protect it i typically put it in between two hordes so that way he's he's not getting flanked as easily um and uh you've, you've got to protect those flanks at all costs because otherwise he's just going to fold um but in combat he's he's a beat stick he, he really he grinds really well um and before he gets into combat uh he's effectively a organ gun um if he doesn't move that turn he's still hitting on fours um 18 inches, 12 attacks with Pierce 2. That's a lot of damage. Pretty good. Mm, it's pretty good. And height 5, so he's going to see over your entire battle line. Um, he's he's great. I, I, I struggle to not include him. Um, I don't know if that says more about my particular play style and what I'm drawn to or more about his effectiveness. Um, other more weathered dwarf players could probably give you better insight, but I, I love him. I think he's, I think all three of these characters are, are fantastic. And then the rest of the army is just, you know, seasoned to taste. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm curious, do you find that you have tough matchups, whatever you play against, or have you found that this list specifically has tough matchups or is there certain things that when you're playing dwarves uh, that you feel is rough, like army army composition wise? Uh, I have tough matchups every tournament because I play in the South. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have delusions of grandeur. That's a fair fair answer. I have have delusions of mediocrity (laughs) or just adequacy. Um, there are, there are so many good players here and like they, and they all play so many different armies too. There's, 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 um, there's not a lot of, uh, repeating armies. Um, I, I will say, you know, I, I do struggle against like a flying circus or high mobility, um, type armies. I will struggle against those just because I'm not as quick. Um, so I, you know, I have to account for that in deployment, but those ones are ones I'm typically not that thrilled about. Um, 
just because it's going to be an uphill battle the whole way. Uh, I know if I'm fighting something with a lot of Alohi, um, I played Lex Simon at um, Alamo this year, and that you know he was worried. He goes, "Oh, dwarfs are a bad matchup for me." I'm like, "Lex, it's me. You're going to be fine." <laughs> Uh, and then uh, at Alamo, uh, not Alamo, sorry, at Lone Wolf last year, 22, uh, I played Grant Fetter and his, you know, Aloe Spam uh, round one. And that's just, that's a tough matchup for me as well. Um, so things like that, that really threaten flanks and rears are are tough for me as a dwarf player. Um, and then yes, I'm trying to think of any other matchups that, that give me pause. Things that, hmm, things that outgrind me, which... Dwarfs grind really, really well. But if I'm coming up against something that's like, oh, here's like the like an undead army with the with their formation, that grinds really well. Or an abyss army with the well of souls, that grinds really, really well. Um, if I get into a like a grind off, so to speak, that's that's going to be tough. That's a really great point. And when you build an army around, my army is a fast army. My army is a grind army. My army is a shooting army. Or if your army has like a theme like that, and you happen to play the one other army in the game that does that, but does that slightly better than <laughs> <Yeah>. your version, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I played my base aliens a lot, which are speed, but have some palace guard and mixed arms, you know, type stuff where it's like. If I play it against speed that's speedier, or if I'm playing my palace guard against something else that does what they do, that whatever, the better. Those can be tough games. Absolutely. Um, another one I'll struggle with is um, armies that have more effective drops than me. Um, because, again, being a counterpunching army, I'm not picking up a lot of things first. Um, they have to come to me before I can start picking their stuff up. Uh, and so if there's if they have more than i can handle um then they're just you know i struggle with trash armies especially like that's that's the 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 far example of that um but if they've got even a couple more quality drops than me i'm going to struggle with the that towards the end and it's going to be like that one's definitely coming down to turn six or seven (laughs) and you've mentioned you know some of your top performers uh on the gameplay wise (laughs) i know you're a hobby guy is there any units that you just you love in your in this dwarf army that you paint or just like man that's really a, speak to you? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a um, tough one because like, like I was saying when I was as I was building out this army, it was just see cool dwarf by cool dwarf. Um, so I I really like my um, let's see here. Oh, I'll start with my Faber model. I got a <laughs> actually I got, I got sent the wrong thing from I believe it was Titan Forge. I ordered their I think it was called like an ancestral zeppelin or something like that. Just a giant zeppelin with this this um uh, like four engines and wings on it. I needed it as a special character for uh, King of the Monsters. It was going to be my Mothra um model, and it was just this oh, really dope. cool like yeah. looking zeppelin that fit the theme of my army. Well, they sent me this two pack of these other little like um smaller zeppelin guys that have like a, a rider he's got like a um he's like in a chair that's suspended under the zeppelin and he's buckled in and it's got like two gatling guns underneath it um and that sits on a 40 mil so when i opened those up i sent them an email i was like hey you sent me the wrong thing they went keep it i went great now i have a favorite Ironheart model because <laughs> it sits on a 40 mil um so i, I really like the way that one turned out um i like my still behemoth model too uh my my Gallic's fury um i I like the Mantic one. I think that's really cool. But I ordered uh, – it was a two-pack of this little like steampunk-type tank um, from – I can't remember. It's a it's a, some other maker of miniatures in 
in England, I think, and they do mostly like historicals. Um, and this is like a steampunk type tank. Uh, so I took one of the old Thoric Ironbrow Anvil of Doom Anvil Guards and I stuck him in the top of that and put it together and stuck it on Chariot Base and I think it looks looks great. Um, the Bulwarkers are you know Cyborg or Shybor. I'm always screwing the pronunciation up on that. Um, but that particular, I think I think it's Shibor. Shibor, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I that might have been Billy who said that when we had him on, but I think that's like the uh, the. I'll, I'll defer to Billy on this one, Shibor. Um, but my bulwarkers are from them. Polish, because I think it's a Polish company. I think right? that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my Iron Garter Oathmark. My Shieldbreakers are old GW miners. Um, my Sharpshooters are actually Mantic. They're not the Mantic Sharpshooters. They're the uh, um the iron watch rifles because a box of those you can get four troops of uh, sharpshooters out of <laughs> for, uh, cause there's 20 in the box. Um, but yeah, those are, those are some of my favorites in, in the list. And then the and your cowboy hell army is mostly <laughs> mantic, right? It is. It is a hundred percent mantic. Cause I knew, yes. I knew for okay, my second army, uh, for my second full army, I, I wanted to go all mantic and uh, show off their line. And that way I could say I supported mantic to its fullest. And I have a mantic army that I'm, I'm proud of it's it's great. Oh man, you really inspired me to use in my Empire of Dust army the Cronius as my reanimated behemoth. Oh, that's cool, man. Because you have oh yeah, you, Randy has these great uh, reanim or Cronius as an army and one where he did like a custom uh, setup. Isn't it holding a minecart? Yeah, I, what? I took the minecart yes. from the Mantic terrain crate um, and the and some of the train tracks from that same crate um and since the cronius is monopose and i was running double cronius um i wanted some way to differentiate them so i stuck uh since they're in you know old west and, and desert uh i took the two i took a, a train track piece and cut it in half and put it underneath the cronius foot so it looks like he's stepping on it and it's like broke up uh and kind of lifting out of the ground and then he's holding the mine cart in his hand i took and clipped some i clipped the wheels off and gouged out a spot for his thumb to go in like he picked it up and is holding it uh you know in his hand and firing off his fireball at, at something else just to give him some sort of differentiation that i could and it's still 100 percent mantic because it's mantic models <laughs> i love that idea of using a uh, terrain crate right rob using using because we've talked about that right we're, we're beginning to see people go full mantic but also i think if you want to convert using mantic models or make stuff using the train crate there's a whole area of building mantic armies that hasn't even been explored yet absolutely because the train crate is uh, is such a great resource for things like that because uh, it, they they lend themselves so perfectly to, to multi-basing because multi-basing is effectively miniature dioramas um that just happened to double his toy soldiers um so by all means throw the terrain crate in there and give some extra layers and development to your um to your miniatures and it really adds some extra character to them um even if it's not terrain crate you can buy cheap um like barrels and crates and trees and things to do for that for my sharpshooters um i found a bunch of uh like 3d printed uh crates and barrels uh off of different sizes on amazon and i threw one on the base and they're they're there to act as the like um not the big shield but like the the other bit from the mantic box that they're standing behind the the barrier the barricade and so i've got them posed like up on top of the of the crates and behind the barrels and things like that is that extra little feature so it, and then i use them throughout the rest of the army as like a the theme their idea being like a dwarven expeditionary force of some kind that's constantly traveling or something along those lines i haven't fully fleshed out the idea yet but they're there and it helps you know tie the army together the time has come to hit you with our 10 rapid fire questions all right let's let's do it <laughs> 
What is your least favorite scenario? Oh, anyone where I've got spread thin. So let's go with like salty earth. What drives you creatively or competitively? Creatively, a cool idea. Competitively, anything that's going to get me a top half at a tournament. <laughs> when your opponent rolls snake eyes. Damn, that sucks, buddy. You want a beer? When you roll snake eyes. Damn, sucks, buddy. You want a beer? <laughs> what is your favorite hobby material? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I think my f- new favorite one is the Vallejo texture paste. What's your gaming pet peeve? Gaming pet peeve. I'll say like guys that like pick up their dice too quick. If you had to replace miniature wargaming with another hobby, what would it be? Ooh, I would probably spend more time uh, on my Xbox. <laughs> what other miniature war game would you not want to play? I know I've seen like some of the, the leaks and teases for the old world, and I'm just, I'm not interested. If you had a romantic evening with Ronnie Renton, what would you whisper sweetly to him? Dwarf, heavy, cavalry, armored bears. Randy, thanks for coming on. It was a great chat. I, I Jeremy, this was a really fun one to do. Yeah, you know, it was really great. Uh, Randy's a good dude. You know, Rob, sometimes you play someone and you kick the shit out of them and you become great friends. That was Randy's and I. <laughs> <laughs> me, me cute is that uh, I got to beat him. No, I'm just kidding. No, no uh, it's true though. It was, it's a really funny story because like it was round two at Alamo. Not, I keep doing that. Round two at Lone Wolf, uh, 21, I believe. And like you kicked my ass so quick. I was like, oh, great. Great game. I enjoyed it. Your army looks fantastic. Yada, yada. I'm like, I'm going to go check out some other games and see who's done yet. We were the first game done. <laughs> yeah. I will say though, Rob, when we, when we had the Rumble in the Jungle part deux, when I played Randy with his uh, Abyssal Wild West Abyssals, that game was much closer. I he was a different, gave you a run for your a, money there. He was a different player in that game than he was in the first time we met, and that's a, a, a testament to how you can improve in this game and get you really win better. or you learn. And I've done a lot of learning over the past couple of years, Jeremy. <laughs> or should we read into this that what he learned was don't play dwarves? <laughs> No, by all means, go play dwarves. I think they're in a great Lots spot of right now. Play dwarves well, now yeah. yeah, it was one of the most picked armies at uh, at Masters the past year. In fact, my dwarfs did pretty well because Tom used my dwarfs. <laughs> and I just ha- I, I got to know, Randy. Yeah. Are you going to help take me back to my junior of high school again at Lone Wolf? And am I going to hear some more bare naked ladies at karaoke night? Oh, did absolutely. Did you hear about that, Rob? Absolutely. Uh, it's my Randy's performance of uh one week was the craziest thing the chinese chicken was brought you know it was uh it was amazing him and grant federer man they need to start a professional karaoke band grant can actually sing like he he had it down i just i talk fast and it's a great party trick um and so any chance i get the uh or anytime i get the chance to stroke my ego in that manner i will absolutely go do it i love me some karaoke (laughs) well thanks for coming on it was great chatting with you Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. And, you know, you're still wrong for throwing me on the list builder studio after two masters, but Hey, it is what it is. This was, this was a fun time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, uh, if anyone sees me in a tournament, come say hi, come have a beer. We'll play a game. It's, it's great. Uh, the community is a big draw for me in this, uh, uh in Kings of War. So like, come say hi. I don't bite. <laughs> well, I think that's going to do us tonight. And until next time, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. 
If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.